Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. If you're a newcomer with us today, you're here for the first or maybe a first handful of times, I'd like to remind you this QR code here on the back. You can scan that like you're doing at most restaurants nowadays, and there's an opportunity for you to kind of connect with us a little bit more if you're interested in that. And also, in case you missed the announcement earlier, we're having uh, what we're calling the First Supper. Instead of the Last Supper with Jesus, it's the First Supper with Sycamore, and it's right after this service if you're a newcomer here. We did ask you to register in advance, but I assure you, if you didn't have the opportunity or you're with us for the first time today, we can fit you in and have plenty of, of food. We'd love to have a chance to get to know you and you to get to know us. So for the rest of us, you regular folk, we are finishing up finally the book of James after being in it since uh, the very end of May, the beginning of the summer. We're going to be in James chapter 5, starting in verse 7 and ending up in 20. It's on uh, page 10 for you in the ESV translation. Before we get there, um, one of my, not not favorite, but one of my really preferred authors I like to read is a guy named Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is what's called an agrarian, which means he just really likes farmers, and he really likes the whole farming lifestyle, and he loves rural America, and he just writes, he's, he's kind of like what Marty would be if Marty was a, you know, a, bit, a little bit more poetic, maybe. And he just loves rural America, loves the, the country, and just loves thinking about that kind of lifestyle and what Jesus has to do with that kind of life. And one of the things I love about him is he's from rural Kentucky, but he wasn't really a farmer or anything, but because of his poetry, because of his writings, he felt compelled that to be authentic, he had to enter this lifestyle, so he became a farmer. So he is a poet and a farmer and a writer and a famous speaker. And I just love that idea that his beliefs were so part of who he is, that in order for him to be authentic, he had to, as a poet, he had to become a farmer as well. He became a doer of his beliefs. And that really reflects the whole point of James here at the very end. To be a doer of Christianity. To be a poet of Jesus. See, as Christians, James has been telling us over the course of his book, we are those who do life differently. We demonstrate a beautiful life reflecting the beauty of Jesus. We are those then whose, whose lives are a connection to the ultimate reality that Jesus is bringing one day, someday. Christians, James is trying to get us to see from the individual to the group, demonstrate the way the world should be. So here is James giving his final word, his final chance, his final, this is it, an authentic Christianity. And he basically says here in this last section, either God is everything to you or he's nothing. There is no middle ground. And monsters who he's been talking about, those who separate faith and works, try to live in that middle ground. And since we all have been monsters, as the book of James has showed us over the course of the last couple months, we need to hear these final words from James. And so as we go to God's Word, as is our tradition, would you please rise for the reading of God's Word as we look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. This is God's Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word that challenges us, that doesn't let us be comfortable in a superficial faith, but calls us to either be all in or recognize that we're all out. Lord, we pray that You would once again show us the grace of Jesus and that You would draw us deeper into that grace that we might taste and see that you are good. Oh, Lord, do this in your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. So our theme for today is this. Here's where we're trying to go. Monsters don't pray, and so they have no patience or friends. See, monsters don't live in patience. They don't believe in prayer, and they don't really care for other people, is how James wraps up. So I just want to jump right in. He says in verses 7 and verse 8 right away, be patient. Be patient in what? Well, from the very beginning, the book of James has been about trials. And as we saw over the unfolding of the book, it's about trials in the church. That after everything we've seen, we've got monsters in the church. We've got those separating faith and works so that they're dead inside and they treat others poorly. All the trials warned about at the beginning of this letter are about those things happening in the church. There's some, there's some scary stuff that goes on inside churches, isn't there? And James reminds us we're all monsters like that, that God is still working on us. So, he says, be as patient with others as you hope God is with you, as you assume God will be with you. See, he establishes this in good theology. He goes on to say, and this is a really interesting way to put it, he says, the patience of Christians is what validates our actual belief in the return of Jesus, which is kind of an interesting way to put it. He doesn't say, well, be patient because it's good. Be patient because it's better for community. Be patient because it makes Jesus happy. Be patient because God is patient. What he says is, be patient because of the good that's coming. Like a, fa- a farmer is patient with all the junk of actually caring for the land and husbanding this crop because he knows a great harvest is coming. He believes in that. So too, if you believe Jesus is coming back to make everything better, it fuels your patience. And so the opposite then is what? If you're not patient, it means deep down you don't actually believe that that's coming. 
See, he points out that there's a better world coming, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And I love how he puts that little word therefore in in verse 7 because it validates that. He says, be patient, therefore, because it's hard. The world shouldn't be this way. See, Christian patience is not merely the stoic, oh well, or the, what's popular today, right? It is what it is, right? All of those things, they diminish suffering. They diminish the junk you're going through. And Christianity doesn't do that. James doesn't do that. James says the world shouldn't be this way. Christianity validates our pain. It validates our struggle. And then it gives us the resources to be patient in it. Like a farmer waits for the harvest, so too the belief in the coming of Jesus empowers our patience. The world that Jesus is bringing then is the community we're supposed to be now, James says. So we're patient we're preserving. We don't grumble about others. Anybody ever grumbled about others in church? Don't raise your hands. Yeah. James tells us in verse 9, don't do it. Just stop. Here's how I put it for the kids. Let's look at their verse 9 together. The kids verse 9 says this. It says, until then, that is Jesus comes back, don't groan about each other. You're probably just as bad as the other person. And God is coming to judge us all soon. See, grumbling, divisive attacks on others, conflicts in the church are usually based in our judging others. We judge them. And James comes and says, um, stay in your lane. That's God's job, not yours. I mean, imagine how many conflicts in the church would just go away if we just stopped and thought when we're angry, when we're perturbed, when we're upset. Two things. Is this my lane? And two, am I as guilty as the person I'm upset about? That's what James is getting at. He's like trying to dig down to all these conflicts in the church and get to the root cause of it. He's like, look, y'all, be patient. And to give us resources, he goes to the Old Testament in verse 10 saying, hey, look at the prophets in the Old Testament. They suffered and they were still patient. And his point there is simply this. We are not the first nor the last Christians to be hurt by other Christians. But there's blessing on the other side of that if we endure. Let's look together at verse 11. What does he say? He says this. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James says, you want some fuel for patience, fine. Look at Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And for those of you who are like, I haven't actually heard of the steadfastness of Job. I'm not, I'm not that familiar with Job. Well, you're in luck. Adult Sunday school starting in a couple weeks is going to be on Job. So you need to come and you can hear about the steadfastness of Job. Short version is this. Job had it all and God took it all away to see if Job really worshipped him or worshipped the stuff. And Job was patient through it all. And eventually, at the end of it, he was blessed beyond measure. And why, James tells us? Because God is compassionate and merciful. Literally, he says, God is abundantly compassionate and tender. You believe that? Because cards on the table, that's a hard one for Presbyterians, right? Because... Rightly so, we're all about the, what theologians call the transcendence of God. That means that he's big and scary and other, right? C.S. Lewis, he's a lion. 
But he reminds us in Scripture, yeah, but he's a safe lion. He's compassionate and tender. Do you fundamentally believe that God is compassionate, that he's tender, that God wanted to bless Job, and that Job's patience through those incredible trials unleashed God's blessing because he's extremely compassionate. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, I'll make sure you're, you're tracking with me here. Let's look at your verse 11, see what it tells us about God. It says, remember, blessing usually comes after faithfully waiting. Think of the story of Job. Only at the end did he see how very kind and tender God was to him. Boys and girls, it's, it's, it's hard to wait for something, isn't it? Especially if you don't know it's going to be good. I, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I seem to remember that my parents, it just seemed like they wrapped Christmas presents so early. And they would be there under the tree and I would have to stare at them and be like, oh, I hope it's not a sweater. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because I, I had to hope, I didn't know. See, and that's what James is telling us here. We have to believe that God is compassionate and tender. He's going to do a, give us good things, and that hope fuels our patience. So again, the fundamental issue is, do we believe that God is actually abundantly compassionate, super merciful, tender-hearted? Do we believe that? Because see, monsters, those who separate faith and works and try to please God through their actions— Monsters fundamentally don't believe God is compassionate. They don't believe God has the best in store for us. They don't believe a better world is coming, and that makes them monsters to each other because they have no security. They've got to make themselves secure, either through doing a lot of religious works or through having super accurate theology. Either way, they're not looking to Jesus. They're resting in what they can do because they don't believe that God is compassionate and will give them grace. I mean, when life is difficult, when Christianity doesn't work out, when we don't get the good life we think we deserve, our inner monster comes out, doesn't it? Right? If we doubt God's grace and compassion, but we're kind of religiously minded, we tend to fall back into thinking that it's our churchy performance. It's doing all the stuff, showing up to all the things, being externally religious, jumping through those hoops. That's what God really likes. That's being a monster. That's all works, no faith. Or maybe when things are working out and, and we're very excited about that, life, life is good. And it, it must be because I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I teach my ch kids the catechism. I understand Calvinism. I get it better than those people over there, non-denominational. What does that even mean? See, that's what ghosts do. It's all faith, no works. I'm resting in my theology, not in Jesus. And neither of those monsters rest in the grace of God because monsters don't fundamentally believe the gospel. James says, and when that happens, when trials come, monsters lack endurance. But poets don't. Poets of Jesus, doers of the word, ask for wisdom, he tells us in chapter 1. We don't we don't use our own selfish resources in chapter 2. It's to be looked to Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, we don't make conflicts even worse like monsters do. See, James calls us here to live out the gospel authentically, actually believing in the compassionate grace of God for sinners such as us. See, and ultimately then, as verse 12 then shows, James calls us to live in peace, 
This is biblical peace. This is not merely the absence of conflict. The, the biblical word shalom, which is so in in church world, I know you've heard the word shalom. It doesn't just mean stop fighting, y'all. It's, it's more akin to our word for wholesomeness or even integrity. It means, it means kind of just being true through and through. Let me give you an example of this. I went through a, a, a period 10, 15 years ago where just as I had a verbal habit of, of saying, well, to be honest with you, which we all know that means, right? It, mean, it doesn't mean, well, I've been lying until this point. What it means, well, uh, you know, I've been like polite, but let me just like be really candid at this point, right? And I had a, I had a, a, a dear friend, someone I trust, point out to me, he says, we all know that's what it means, but I mean, do, do you think it's wise, especially for a pastor, to like to say, to be honest, because it does kind of indicate that you haven't been being honest, you know? And of course, I went like, well, you're not stupid. But instead, I was like, well, that's probably a pretty good point, I guess. Okay. You know, because why? Someone who is biblically at peace, living in integrity, wholesome, doesn't have to caveat their truth. They just say it. They live in truth. They're authentic. That's what James means in verse 12. Jesus gives Christians an integrity of word and deed. So swearing, promising in order to prove your truthfulness is unnecessary. You don't have to do that because you're true through and through. See, the Christian life is supposed to be a picture of the world Jesus is bringing. And if that's true, if, if that world is actually coming, James says, then Christians are empowered to patiently endure all the junk, all the conflicts, because we know the people in this world and the people in the church are broken like we are. And Jesus is coming to fix us and fix them. See, that good theology rooted in God's great compassion makes us compassionate. It makes us reflect the beauty of Jesus instead of being a mashup of grumbling monsters mired in conflict. James is writing to a group of churches that are clearly in some serious conflict. And again, like I've said before, I mean, think about that. We're, we're, we're talking 10, maybe 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. These churches are mired in conflict. And James points them to theology to fix it not to do better, try harder, be more. So James sums up his letter with patience, and then he moves on to prayer, starting in verse 13. And here's where the struggle for prayer, for, uh, yeah, the struggle for patience is won or lost at this point, because monsters don't pray. I mean, there's lip service to prayer, and if you call on them at the end of like a Bible study or something, they can do a really good closing prayer. But there's not a fundamental conviction that prayer is the real work of real faith. I'm not referring to fervency. I'm not referring to how long you pray. I would remind you that Jesus' model prayer is less than 30 seconds. Okay, not about that. I'm talking about a fundamental bedrock belief in the reality and effectiveness of prayer. I want to tell you a common joke around seminaries. It's not very funny, but it's very poignant to help you understand what I'm saying. So, well, I'm being honest. It's not that funny. So, so you got a young Presbyterian minister. It's got to be a Presbyterian for it to work. And he's not that experienced yet, and he's at his first church, and this older woman in the congregation is sick and in the hospital and she calls him and asks him to come and visit and he's like well you know I, I gotta put my books away to come visit I guess I can do that so he goes and he visits and he's like chit-chatting with her and eventually she goes well are you gonna pray 
And he's like, oh, well, what do you want me to pray for? And she's like, pray that I'd be healed. You know, and he's like, and, you know, in his mind, he's getting things like, well, we're Presbyterian, we don't really pray for that, but okay. So he prays and he does all the good Presbyterian caveats. Well, you know, please use the doctors and medical science and you know, blah, blah, blah. And Lord, and you know, of course, if it be not your will, would you? So he, he does this prayer. He says, amen, and looks up and she looks at him and goes, it worked. And she jumps out of the bed. She's super excited. She's jumping around. And he's like freaking out. He's like, it worked. God answered the prayer. And he kind of like just pulls himself out of the room and goes back to his car. He sits down and goes, if you ever do that to me again. <laughs> See, real prayer is a real connection to the reality that is coming. And if often we don't actually believe prayer is that powerful, do we? We don't really believe that beautiful world is coming and that prayer is one of the keys to it. And so because we struggle to believe that, we struggle to believe in the power of prayer and we struggle to pray. I love how James just cuts through all that noise and just makes it so simple. Look with me at the second half of verse 13, what he says. He says, look, is anyone among you suffering? Then let him pray. And suffering here is, doesn't mean just sick. It, it, it could refer to physical maladies. It could refer to mental struggles. It could refer to emotional hardship. He says, if you're in those things, just pray. Just do it. See, in the trials of church conflicts, the way forward is not through stress. It's not through worry. It's not through grumbling or posturing. It's through prayer. And yet prayer is so hard, isn't it? It really is. I get that. I, I get that. Um, so I had to fly out of town at the last minute and, and had to, I had to go help bury my best friend on Thursday. Um, and as he lay dying of COVID over the last four weeks in the hospital, I couldn't communicate with him because he's on a ventilator. So his mom would call me and text me at updates. And every time she would give me an update, it was always worse and worse news. And the only thing I had, because they're you know, so far away in a different state, was I'll pray for you. And I will admit I know I'm not supposed to say this. I'm supposed to say it. It felt so weak. It felt so churchy. It felt so just emptily religious. That's all I had. See, and that's the monster in me rising up. Telling me prayer is not real. You need to do something. Pray. That's my unbelief. That's the voice of practical atheism which doubts the reality of prayer. And it's the voice we all have, don't we? And James confronts our unbelief because it's what stops us from being doers of Christianity, poets of Jesus. And look how challenging he does this. I love how he's an artist. He just, he's like a master of the human heart, how he just challenges us straight up on that. Look at me at verse 14. He says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I have done this as a pastor so many times. So I can tell you what James is doing here. There's no hidden magic in the oil. It's just a ritual. It's one of the few actual rituals we have commanded in the New Testament. And here's how it's so poignant to help our unbelief. Actually laying hands on someone actually anointing them with oil and then actually believing that it's effective in some way is so completely non-rational, not irrational, it's so completely non-rational that it's a complete frontal assault on our practical atheism. 
You have to get through the this feels so weird to actually do it and believe that it is the cure to your practical atheism, to just do this. And it's even bigger than we think. See, I, I know that this is what it is because it conf- doing this as a pastor, and I've done it, it confronts my practical atheism every time. It forces me to face my inner monster every time because it's just so non-rational. And the word sick here literally means weak, needy, feeble. It's about the whole person. James is telling us that in the gospel, Jesus provides a means of healing. So I just want to say right here, as your pastor, if you are struggling with your weakness, depression, anger, addiction, pornography, chronic illness, then come to the session. We will lay hands on you. We will anoint you with oil, and we will pray for your healing. And if that's a little too much, that's a little scary, do what verse 16 says, and confess to other believers and receive prayer from them. See, and again, even that is such a challenge because in verse 16, he's calling us to be a very real, honest community. Because how can you actually confess to your fellow Christians your real needs for prayer if they don't know your real struggles? If you're not really living in community with them, if you haven't confessed those to them. See, James is calling us here to this radical belief in prayer and this radical community that destroys our practical atheism because we believe a better world is coming. And if we can't overcome how non-rational it all seems, it means we don't actually believe in that better world that's coming, James says. Because God's people at prayer are powerful. That God's going to change the world using the church is what James has been trying to show for five chapters. And he gives us the gospel to do it. You know, we, we miss this healing aspect of the gospel a lot. We really do. I want to do a thought experiment here. I want you to think about the life of Jesus, whether you know a lot about it or a little bit about it. One of the things that people pretty much know is Jesus did some miracles, right, wonders in his lifetime. And I want you to just kind of think of yourself, a mental exercise, why did Jesus do miracles? Like, not individual ones, well, that person, you know, like, overall, why did Jesus even do miracles? For most people, we tend to think in terms of, well, you know, he needed to get more well-known, and so those were like Instagrammable moments, and someone took it and posted it, and he went viral, so his fame would spread, so his message would spread, so he'd have more effectiveness. We, we tend to think in some sort of terms like that. It was some sort of build his brand, to build his reputation, to make him more well-known. But that's actually not what it is. John 11 specifically and other places tell us exactly why Jesus did miracles. Because things like sickness, crippled, death should not be. And when Jesus encountered him, he's like, no, this should not be in my world. I'm going to fix it. And one of the most poignant examples is in John 11, right before he's going to raise Lazarus. Shortest verse in the Bible, super famous, right? Jesus wept. He weeps right before he raises Lazarus, but after he says he's going to do it. And he weeps not because he's sad that Lazarus is dead. He weeps because he's sad that death exists. He can't stand it. He's going to do something about it because his ministry is primarily to heal from the effects of sin, to set 
people free from the power of sin and from the presence of sin and from the results of sin. And he has commissioned his church to be his agents of that healing until he comes back again. Jesus applied the healing power of God's compassion because he was the walking compassion of God itself. And that is the attitude, that's the belief that doers of the word, poets of Jesus have today when we look on our sin-sick world. We recognize that we are the ones called to now embody his compassion where sin has broken people. See, James has this firm conviction that God will use his church to fix the broken things in the world. And rooted in that belief, our prayers are then effective. So the question is, will we pray? Because monsters don't pray. And so they have no patience and they have no friends. And that's how we'll end up here with no friends in verses 19 through 20. I so wanted to bring my phone up here and Apple users, have you done this yet? And, and say, hey Siri, what's zero divided by zero? And listen to the answer. Has anybody done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. You have, okay, a couple of you. Okay, uh, the Apple programmers are like snarky and um, you need to go home later today and you need to ask Siri to divide zero by zero. And there's this funny little anecdote that happens, but she ends by saying, and you'll have no friends, which is why I wanted to use it right here. So, so the book of James has been all about people. It's all about conflicts and trials among God's people, among church members, among friends. See, ultimately, they are not being doers of Christianity, poets of Jesus, because they still don't believe the gospel. And when you get a group of people together who, all, who know all the church stuff but don't believe the gospel, you get a room full of monsters, and they start eating each other. And verse 19 tells us that these monsters then run people away from the church. The trials have caused people to leave. Not just go to the church down the street, but like so many in our community, they've left Christianity. They've become de-churched. So there's a, there's a current social media phenomenon. I don't want to call it trend because it's actually significant. And calling something a trend makes it seem superficial. There's a, a social media phenomenon. It's been fueled by a couple of famous ex-pastors and a current Netflix documentary where deconstructing your faith is happening a lot among young people or deconversion stories. Um, and, you know, this is the point where I'm supposed to, like, rail against those and that's dumb, you shouldn't do that. But I get that. I totally get that as a pastor because what a deconstruction story is, is most it's people who tend to have grown up in the church. And what has happened is the essentials of the faith have all of a sudden been wedded with optional things, not bad things, just optional things, and in such a way that it's hard to distinguish the optional from the essential, and they don't like the optional, and so they're rejecting those thinking they're rejecting the essential. And they've been hurt a lot by this. And so they're like, you know what? This Christianity is not for me. I know that's really vague, but it is so vague. What, what, so just think of whatever it is. Like, when you stand before God at the end of your days, you're either in Jesus by faith or you're not. Anything else is our subjective opinion that we like to add to it. And, and for some of us, it's very important that church look a certain way. And sometimes our children say, oh, well then... If I don't believe that's a certain way, then I must not believe in Jesus. And, that's, and so when people start to get there, that's called a deconstruction story. And if that's you, man, I get that. And I want you to hear me right now. I would love to talk with you if you're, if you're kind of struggling with this, if a deconstruction experience uh, resonates with you. I would like to talk with you, not to talk you out of it, 
but to help you understand what's essential and what's optional and make sure that what you're walking away from is the real thing and not just a caricature because you don't want to do that. And maybe I'm a big, scary pastor and you don't want to talk to me. Talk to a friend. Don't, don't, don't do that alone. If, if deconversion and deconstruction, if, if that's kind of in your heart right now, you can, you can get resources. And one of the resources that just, I just find this amazing is that when I say something like deconstructing your faith, it sounds so 2021, but right here in a book 2,000 years old, James is addressing people who have deconstructed their faith. Notice verse 19 talks about brothers. They've walked away. These are people in the church who've left. And remember, this is first century. They didn't just go to the church down the street. They walked away from the church, from the faith. They deconverted. And James instructs God's people here to what? Go after them. He validates that that's real, that's traumatic. Go after them. Go after former brothers and sisters in love and in compassion. Here's where I put it for the boys and girls trying to capture it. It says this. It says, look, if one of you walks away from the gospel and is brought back, whoever gets that monster out of his error has brought him back to new life in Jesus. See, James is saying here, look, instead of focusing so much on errors in the church and causing conflicts and disagreements, poets of Jesus live the truth before others, especially those hurt by churches. And what is the truth? That God is compassionate and tender. We bring sinners back from error. When we do that, we have saved them from death by taking them to Jesus who forgives their sins. So James ends his letter here about church fights, about how hard they are, about how they bring out the worst in us and how we have to learn to love each other. James' last word is basically this. Monsters are bystanders, but poets are first responders. So instead of watching and focusing on they're not doing that right, and I disagree with that, poets instead go treat the wounded. Or to put it more simply, as maybe James would have actually worded it, stop complaining about each other and instead go love your neighbors as yourself. Take the good news to wandering, hurt sinners is how James sums up five chapters. And that's why Jesus came. That's the gospel in this passage. I, wanna, I don't usually do this, but I, I want to show you a slide that kind of shows you how James wraps up under inspiration the entire gospel in the last few parts of this chapter here. So I'm going to put this up here. So what happens? What We're all wandering from the truth in verse 19. And God in his extreme compassion from verse 11 offers the blood of his son, the righteous one, verse 16, to cover the sins talked about in verse 20 and to heal us with that anointing blood like he said in verse 14. He wraps up the gospel. So then what happens? Well, next is this. As those who've been made new in Jesus, we patiently wait for the grace that makes us beautiful, refraining, empowered to refrain from complaining about other Christians because we're works in progress. And we too will be blessed one day, someday. That's how James brings it all together. That's the gospel of James. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what James is trying to say, his last effort is this. There's a more profound Christianity out there if we will repent of the practical atheism we all harbor, the monster inside all of us, and instead be Jesus poets, doers of Christianity. 
And then through our effective prayers and, and then actively going after the wounded, the de church, we will see glimpses of that coming world in our world today. We will actually watch as the church with the gospel heals part of the world. Do you want to be part of that effort? Do you want to see that world come? Then repent of your apathy about Christianity, which so many of us are in. Embrace the identity of being a Christian. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And rest your life in the compassion of God that he has shown you by giving you his son in the gospel. And let that gospel empower you to love sinners and go after them in Jesus' name. That's James. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, this part of James is hard because there's a lot of instructions. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of shoulds. There's a lot of do this, be this. And Lord, I know my heart and probably many hearts here receive that as try harder, exert yourself more, be better, do Father, I pray that you would help us to repent of that. And instead, we would rest in the actions, performance, works of Jesus Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that you would give us new ears to hear the gospel. That what you require, you provide. That you require perfection, and so you make us united to your perfect Son, so that in him we are counted as righteous and empowered to actually be righteous. Well, would you help us to believe that? And we pray, Lord, that for those here today who might be struggling with their faith, deconstruction and deconversion looks very attractive. Lord, we pray that you would gently, with your compassion and tenderness, call them back to the essential truths of the faith. Give them the discernment to shed the junk that's not necessary that has hurt them. We pray that you would give us the privilege of being part of that healing process, Father. And we pray of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.